this kind of risky, bad patient framing transness as this very uncertain thing that might result in a lot of regret, like that gets formulated as what a trans person is um, in a way that we still like, you know, to, just to bring this back to the Baslin piece, like that's the same exact narrative. Like that has right. not changed at all because of the way that they constructed the category of transness as centering around this kind of inherent psychological instability. Support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Today, I'm really excited to introduce our guest, Beans Velosi. Beans is a historian of sex, science, and classification, as well as an assistant professor in history and sociology of science and core faculty in gender, women's, and sexuality studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Beans, welcome to the Deaf Panel. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about a journal article of yours that was published in Transgender Studies Quarterly in 2021 called Standards of Care, Uncertainty and Risk in Harry Benjamin's Transsexual Classifications. This might sound familiar to listeners who have heard our interview with Jules Gilt-Peterson and Charlie Mark Brighter about the New York Times magazine piece by Emily Bazelon that came out in June of 2022, uh, which was all about the current standards of care framed around a new revision to the WPATH guidelines that is imminent. And this article, of course, portrayed the safety and risk of trans healthcare as a very unsettled and brand new debate, ignoring much work that tells us otherwise. As we talked about in that episode with Jules and Charlie, which really tore Bazelon's piece to shreds, there was so much that Bazelon got wrong. And because your essay was mentioned in it, Beans, it reminded me how great your work is. And I wanted to have you on to talk about it because the history that you lay out here is so crucial for understanding how systems of sorting, classification, and certification not only shape who gets access to something, but also how these systems and their criteria come to be seen as biological truths. So with all that said, before we get into the essay itself to start us off, can you talk a little bit about what your research interests are? I'd love to briefly just sort of get into a little context, especially the book project that you're working on right now. Yeah, totally. So most of my work is about how things that we think of as just like biologically inherent to bodies um, are actually like made up a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm working on this book manuscript that, you know, tentatively, very tentatively titled uh, Binary Logic, The Power of Incoherence in American Sex Science. I like that. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> Um, and and basically, the argument is that sex functions as a classification system in large part because scientists and researchers kind of just all agree that it doesn't really have to make sense. 
there are so many different bodily configurations that are brought back into categories of maleness and femaleness. Um, what sex even is, is subject to a lot of disagreement um, mm-hmm. over over the course of, I mean, I focus on like the late 19th and early 20th century in the US, but um, we, we still see that happening. And the project really started from reading a lot of trans history that was like specifically about the history of trans people before the category trans. Um, and and thinking and kind of being a bit frustrated with how historians were trying to identify trans people in the past based on like what are actually a very kind of specific constructed set of traits. And what was happening was that I was I was reading all these books and being like, but there are all of these people that are being in, implicitly de- designated as cis, even though they don't fit categories like normative categories of sex any better than these people who are designated as trans in the past are and so i started digging into like all of these various moments where people were not cast out of these normative male and female categories but were instead brought back into them so um i have a chapter on zoology that's like all of these different animal species that like don't actually really map onto male and female categories very well um, I look at the history of eugenics, I look at the history of gynecology, uh, large-scale statistical studies of sex, and then this work on on trans medicine is the kind of endpoint that's like, okay, we just looked at like a hundred years of history of like cis people um, being constructed as cis, basically. Um, and what happens when doctors are trying to sort out who is trans enough to have surgery from who is not trans enough to have surgery, or at least that was the idea that I went in with. But it turned out, as you know from reading the article, that like that wasn't even the sorting that was going on. Like they didn't particularly care about like who or 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 rather being trans in and of itself was not actually enough to get you access to medical transition. Um, There was this whole other set of concerns that these doctors had. So that's just the kind of endpoint um, of the project. And and this is why I love your work because one of the things that I write about and study is the kinds of ways that we make the categories and the boundaries of what is and isn't a valid disability. Mm-hmm. And I when I was reading this article, there are so many there, I mean, there are so many themes that pop up in the standards of care piece, whether it's you know, making sure that people can get a job so they don't become a burden on the state, making Mm -hmm. sure that people can, you know, ascribe to norms that are the kinds of things that were what the eugenics movement was really trying to enforce, right? And the idea that those norms, which, you know, it's, it's a, I think, you know, up to, up to you, if you think that, like, I don't know, these sort of like norm frameworks are a good thing or not, but like the way that they're framed, regardless of your opinion of them, is as a good thing, right? It's as Mm -hmm. a eugenic thing, not a dysgenic thing. And I, I love how this also, your work and the standards of care piece fits in with that and adds this sort of extra layer on this way that I already understood how we preferred to sort people in the past. Yeah, I mean, I am always so like my work always feels to me like it is kind of like running very parallel to like disability studies and disability history. And that's oh, like, for sure. not Yeah, like it's not the field that like I am most engaged in. But I mean, so much of the history of sex and gender and sexuality is like rooted in the history of eugenics. Like I have this whole I, I'm 
I have to cut it from the book because I'm like the only person who is like going to find it interesting. And like, no one wants a like 20 page digression about funding structures, but I'm going to say it now (laughs) because I think it's very important. Oh yeah. But like the, the, early 20th century history of eugenics and sexology, like the study of sex science in the United States, where it was being funded by the same people, it was being done by the same people, like the committee for problems in, what is it? Oh, I always forget what the, it looks like corpse uh, committee for (laughs) research and problems of sex. There it is. Um, Which was like, you know, the big, research program in the U.S. that was like funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, like ultimately funded um, Alfred Kinsey's work for like its first something like 30 or 40 years was chaired by like a renowned eugenicist who was then funneling money. Yeah, like, of course, like, it's not surprising. But like, the way that historians have to write about this is like, oh, there were like these kind of like shared metaphors, you know, like shared ways of thinking about bodies. When I was like, no, it was actually like literally if you follow the money, like this guy was just like, literally, it was like Robert Yerkes, who is this like primatologist eugenicist Mm -hmm. dude is like giving money to the eugenics records office to like do research about sexuality in psychiatric facilities, which is just, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. So anyway, that's not, that's not going to be in the book, but I'm going to try to do like a separate article about that because it's just like, please do totally. Yeah, like there's this just and it's right there. Like it's not really something that I had to do that much digging for. And that was actually something that was really interesting to me about the the standards of care piece. Also, like I'm really used to my archival work being these like really like digging for crumbs mm-hmm. um kind kind of approach, but they really just they they said the quiet part out loud. <laughs> Absolutely. Um I mean, I think maybe we should go ahead and get right into the essay um itself and then maybe we can like circle back at the yeah, end. Yeah, totally. So what this history really tells in a lot of ways is an important story of how the fears and biases and also how the very specific decision-making processes of a few key personalities, mm-hmm. um, doctors, how they played a crucial role in defining some of these norms that we now still see um, in place in order to qualify people for surgical eligibility. Um, and we also sort of see the the preferences that these doctors had and imposed on their patients reproduced in standards of care, uh, not just in early transmedicine, but still now. Um, and you argue that this uh, work by these two doctors, Harry Benjamin and Elmer Belt, helped to, you know, really kind of also bring the category of trans into being. Um, can you get into first who Harry Benjamin and Elmer Belt are and how exactly they've been influential in shaping the standards of care. Yeah. So let me, I'll start by saying that like neither of them had any idea of what they were doing at this point in history. And I think that's, that was like one of the the most important things for me. So like Harry Benjamin is, you know, remembered as like the father of transsexuality. And he was this German endocrinologist stuck in the U.S. after the First World War and, and kind of just like stays here, set up, uh, sets up his medical practice. And he had a longstanding interest in the kind of like malleability of sex. Um, in his early career, he worked on rejuvenation techniques. So basically like 
using what people would call like testicular extracts and and like <laughs> grafting you know grafting testicles from one kind of animal onto like another in order to like reinvigorate older men and of course this was like very eugenic as things are in this in this period um and so anyway he does that for a while so he kind of has this reputation um of having this understanding of sex that it's not super simple um Mm -hmm. by the late 40s he has set up this like endocrinology practice um in new york and in i don't remember the exact year like 1947 1948 something like that his friend alfred kinsey is like i found this person um you know in my own research i think he would be really interested i'm I'm just going to share her pronouns for this person um I, i think he'd be really interested in her because she is wanting to change her sex basically and benjamin is kind of like huh that's interesting Uh um and so he winds up working with this trans woman who is is kind of known to historians um as val barry and and she's someone who i talk about in the article but but kind of goes through this process of trying to um help her get bottom surgery basically so she's kind of one of the first person where, where we run into all of this like mayhem trouble. So like this goes on for like several years. Benjamin is working with her. And in the process of all of this, there's another trans woman who tries to castrate herself at home, who winds up, um, you know, in the ER, unsurprisingly. Um, mm-hmm. And Belt kind of comes in. Elmer Belt was a medical fellow under the mentorship of Frank Hinman Sr., um, who is like a big deal urologist in the mid-20th century. So, okay, so this other patient, Karen Ecker, winds up in the ER, and Frank Hinman's son, who is also a urologist, is the urologist who treats her after she had tried to operate on herself at home. And so he does, he does like that surgery for her, And then it's kind of like, I don't want to deal with these kinds of patients. And it's not entirely clear how this works, but it seems like, like, I don't have any evidence of this in the archive, but like the fact that Elmer Belt was this guy's dad's student is like kind of fishy. And so Elmer Belt winds up getting like kind of brought into this process. And like, it seems like maybe Hinman who Belt you know, worked with, like, recommended him to Harry Benjamin. Anyway, that's, like, a really, like, tangled... Like, I feel like I would need to, like, draw this out on a chart. Um, but essentially, they kind of fall ass backwards into becoming yeah, the fathers yeah. of, you know, trans surgery or trans classification. Yes. Thank you. That you is know, a they don't set out, like, you know, they're not setting out to, like, right. revolutionize shit. They're not setting out to, to help people or change lives or accomplish anything. You know, they're just, they kind of, like, both are delivered these patients, basically, you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of both end up in it by accident. And at this point, I mean, there had been, you know, work in Germany on trans surgeries like in the early part of the 20th century that like nazis ruined as they do we see that happening again now mm-hmm. um very cute um <laughs> but yeah this was not like an intentional thing this was not like they were like oh, we're gonna do trans stuff we really care about trans people we have any kind of personal investment in this um it, it was really a matter of like being in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. um 
But neither of them had any particular expertise in this. And so one of the reasons that I like found their correspondence so interesting and like found the way that they're like developing what basically become the standards of care is that like these were informal practices. These were this was not like we're going to set out these diagnostic criteria or we're going to like come up with this plan that we're going to like, you know, have everyone get care according to this like very specific trajectory that we've laid out. Instead, it was just kind of like, huh, um, well, it seems like we might get sued if we do it this way. Um, what should we, what should we do? And then like the psychiatrist that they wind up sending people to this guy named Carol Carlson was also like, didn't, you know, have any expertise here. Like he literally had treated Elmer Belt's daughter-in-law. And so it was just like this psychiatrist that Belt happened to know. No, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, you know what? Maybe we should yeah. get a psychiatrist and I know a guy. Let me call right. let me call like my daughter's psychiatrist and get them to sign off on this. Yeah, yeah. And like there's this there's this really funny series of letters where like the psychiatrist is using like the wrong terminology, using the word transvestite instead of transsexual. Um and there's one letter where like Benjamin is like, I wonder if he even read my articles about this. <laughs> I um, love this. I mean, I, one of the things that I feel like we should maybe also get into now is so they they kind of like are coming into this, as you're saying, without any specific feelings about trans people or like politics. You know, they're not coming in this to like revolutionize trans healthcare. But, yeah. you know, they do end up in this position of having a lot of power over trans healthcare, and what are the things that start to preoccupy uh, essentially this nepotistic band of doctors who have been <laughs> assembled like a really fucked up Avengers team or some shit? <laughs> um, yeah. So, like from the beginning, so as as um, with like the first patient Valberry that Benjamin was working with, um, this was where they started being afraid of getting sued. Um, there was this whole kind of back and forth about this thing called like what, what they refer to as like the mayhem statute, which is basically, um, you know, gets interpreted in the fifties as like this kind of outdated law that was like supposed to prevent like potential soldiers from being wounded, um, or maimed or whatever. And they were like, Oh, if we like cut off a person's penis, they won't be a good soldier or something. I don't know. Um, well, I mean, just the fact that it's like called mayhem is pretty, I mean, it's pretty yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really, it's really great. Um, Colby Gordon is also is working on this like history of mayhem and his, his like Twitter bio right now is trans mayhem, which I really appreciate. Um, so there, there's like all of this, oh no, what if we get sued stuff that they're very concerned about um and that this is more of like belt is more worried about that as the one who will actually be operating like benjamin i think is a little less concerned with the getting sued part um he's a little bit more invested in kind of like maintaining his own authority like he really like neither of them like trans people like benjamin at one point is like they're like a damn nuisance most of the time because they're like, you know, demanding and um, asking for too much. And like, Benjamin has just like this whole adversarial relationship with his trans patients where he just like feels like they don't really respect him as a doctor. 
And so he's really worried about that. He's really worried about like emotional stability of patients. Um, and he just kind of finds them annoying. And Belt is the one who is more like, I am actually like going to get sued or like, you know, shot um, or um, he gets really worried about his malpractice insurance. And that's ultimately like by the time he stops doing trans surgeries in like the early 60s, he's like talks to a couple of reporters about it. And like you can kind of see in his correspondence that that's his excuse. He's like, I'm just like the insurance costs are just going to be too high. And like, I just don't, you know, want to deal with that. Like, this is not the main part of my practice. And it's just like not worth it for me. I really appreciate this because I think it undoes some of the myths that you tend to hear when someone's described as being the father of a system of classification. I mean, I think of like mm-hmm. Emil Kraepelin, um, who's sort of a famous German psychiatrist who distinguished between manic depressive and dementia praecox. And a lot mm-hmm. of Kraepelin's personal biases and just sort of arbitrary assumptions about his patients just ended up in these diagnostic criteria and then they became naturalized as features of that personality um, or of that disease or of that classification. You know, one of the things that you talk about a lot in, in this piece is, you know, the the sort of preoccupation with them being framed, uh, you know, the doctors sort of framing their patients as being overly demanding, as you touched mm-hmm. on. You know, the idea that one of the sort of qualifications that was required was, you know, they really literally actually tone policed their patients. Mm -hmm. And if a patient Mm -hmm. stepped over the line, called them on the weekend, they punish their patients by denying them access to surgery. And it's, you know, it's staggering to sort of see also, you know, as you walk through how this is also ultimately sort of naturalized into an attitude that is supposed to be taken towards patients. Um, that is reproduced through medical education and sort of the ways these things get passed from doctor to doctor. Yeah. One of, one of the things that I think is maybe one of the biggest, like, how is this relevant in the present kind of takeaways is the way that like this kind of risky, bad patient framing um, and like transness as this very uncertain thing that might um, result in a lot of regret, like, that gets formulated as what a trans person is um, in a way that we still like, you know, to, just to bring this back to the Baslin piece, like that's the same exact narrative. Like that has right. not changed at all because of the way that they constructed the category of transness as like centering around this kind of inherent psychological instability. Like it's that the inability to like deal with your own dysphoria is what makes you a candidate for surgery, right? Because it's extreme enough that you would need surgery. Um, But at the very same time, like that inability to deal with your like psychological pain um, is also the thing that makes you a bad patient because apparently you like can't keep your shit together enough to literally be patient and just like wait your turn. And so this is how we like start seeing I mean, there's kind of already this, like, you know, pathologizing of transness based on the gender stuff, which, like, that's totally there. Um, I'm less interested in that because that just kind of, like, feels obvious to me, I guess. But, like, the part that's more interesting is, like, there's a lot of it that has actually very little to do with, like, 
pathologizing a certain gendered experience or like pathologizing a certain bodily experience and is instead about trans people becoming a certain type of person who like can't be trusted with the medical care that they want. Right. And sort of can't be trusted to know themselves. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, in your your piece, you you walk through sort of the the correspondence that they're they have back and forth, Benjamin and Belt, really fretting over, you know, are patients worthy or not of their, mm-hmm. um, you know, their masterful expertise. And this is also, you know, ultimately, as you're saying, these guys don't start out as trans surgery experts. They become anointed at experts through the process of gatekeeping patients and sort of policing the respectability of, um, you know, who is given access to the procedure and not. And what that results in is these kinds of frameworks where they say, well, to protect myself from, you know, litigation, let's get a psychiatrist to sign off on this. I'm going to call my buddies, you know, what like my daughter's <laughs> psychiatrist as you're bringing up, like just nepotistic bullshit because they're just covering their ass ultimately because, yeah. you know, Belt's worried about getting sued. He doesn't give a shit about the mental welfare of his patients. He cares about having something to sort of cover his ass in court more than anything else if he was going to like get sued for this. And then you see how that gets translated into our modern perception of what the psychiatric evaluation means in the course of trans mm-hmm. healthcare. And maybe this is a good time for us to sort of bring in the Emily Bazelon article because, you know, so your work was cited in this New York Times piece by Emily Bazelon called The Battle Over Gender Therapy. Uh, I mentioned at the top that listeners may remember um that Jules Gilpeterson and I briefly discussed this use of your essay and why it was weird and fucked up that Bazelon used it the way that she did. But for people, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for people who haven't heard that episode or read that article, um, just a little context, Emily Bazelon wrote a very long form piece that was basically full of anti-trans talking points laundered as a so-called nuanced debate about safety medical authority, consent, risk, you know, the usual. Um, And, you know, this essay uh, that Beans wrote is referenced in it, and it pulls from your essay. It sort of provides like a little historical introduction to uh, what then becomes a section that is just uh, a historical, factually inaccurate, offensive at points, and... um, you know, it's it's doing that kind of thing where, you know, Bazelon's kind of like putting on your work as window dressing. Mm-hmm. Bazelon's framing and appropriation of your work and the way she really awkwardly leveraged your expertise um, did exactly the thing that you call out in the end of this essay um, to quote you, quote, today, anxieties about regret continue to limit access to surgical transitions, whether from efforts by concerned trolls to, quote, unquote, protect young people who want to transition, or continued requirements for evaluation by mental health professionals before being able to access surgery. And to be clear, this sort of concern trolling is exactly what Emily Bazelon did throughout her piece. You know, and so I guess my question is sort of, what was your reaction to seeing your work used that way? Um, well, I think Jules said it best when she was like, how dare she? <laughs> Um, absolutely but no I mean honestly like my first reaction was this kind of I mean okay I'm I'm just gonna like psychoanalyze myself on your podcast but (laughs) 
my my initial reaction was this kind of like weird guilt of like I shouldn't have talked to a reporter like what kind of like hubris was that that I thought my like you know carefully crafted arguments and research would like change what a New York Times reporter was gonna say about trans stuff because this is actually the second time like literally the same week that I talked to um Emily Basil and I talked to another New York Times reporter who also like wildly misquoted me in a different article like several months ago sorry Um, that's fucking crushing it's yeah and so it's just like you know this kind of like what it like I know that I'm right about this but like what is the point of being right about it when this is you know like that it clearly doesn't matter and also like I guess I should just stop talking to reporters because like the reason that I was you know taking like the time and effort and like emotional um effort to like explain to like some random cis person who has a much bigger audience than I'll ever have um what's up with trans history you know clearly and and then they're just taking that and being like oh I, I talked to a trans person I checked the box and now I can like use this person's this trans person's expertise like as this kind of you know cardboard cutout that I'm gonna like stick in here so anyway that was like it was just like kind of like I felt bad that like I had talked to her to begin with and was like lending credibility to this story and then like luckily that did not last very long like in large part because I like listened listened to the episode that you did with Jules and then like I also saw on Twitter a bunch of other people who had talked to Babylon and been like yeah she just like flat out ignored what I said anyway there's also I think like that's one of the parts of this kind of like reporting infrastructure that we like don't talk about as much is also like you know not just like people being like widely misquoted and used but also like the effect that it in fact does have on like the trans experts who are like being manipulated essentially right like I could Mm. have, have chosen not to talk to her but like it felt like my like you know duty, duty you know, yeah. right to like try to do some damage control like knowing that this probably wasn't going to be a great article but I was like okay like I can kind of pinch my nose have this conversation like probably a lot of this is going to get oversimplified but in good faith I was kind of like I'm gonna I'm gonna give this my best shot to at least try to have this not be as harmful as it could be but then, like, instead, my name and expertise was used to do anti-trans violence. Um, so that sucks. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like, it's it's a risky run if you do any kind of this work, right? Is it can yeah. be appropriated in a way that can undermine everything you're, uh, the whole point of doing the work in the first place. And I, I think one yeah. thing, too, though, is that the ideas that that you're trying to correct that are cemented in her mind it's it's kind of remarkable to me that it's kind of like she heard and saw the terrible quotes that you had pulled from belt and benjamin in your piece and instead of reading the critique and seeing what you were saying you know it's like you you sort of just reproduce them as if they're like positive things or if they're you know declarations of fact and this is this is sort of a classic tactic but you know you can't Mm -hmm. It's like you can't stop trying to talk to people who are going to write these pieces. You have to hope that they're not going to ignore you. And I feel like it's always worth it to try and like actually try and push people and challenge them. And at least Mm -hmm. at least at the end of the day, you go to sleep knowing that 
Emily Bazelon like had to hear you out and then decide to ignore you. And she has to fucking live with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it's totally. like fuck those and, people, honestly. Yeah. And like when I, you know, when I go out for tenure, I can be like, yeah, I was quoted in the New York Times, like in several <laughs> articles. Um, and I'm sure some dean of something will be like, wow, that's very impressive. You are you are a public scholar. You know, they won't read it either. They probably have bad opinions. Um <laughs> Well, no, I mean, and I think one of the things that there, there's a kind of common sense notion that, you know, a lot of these things that are important in terms of like the classification, whether it's, as we're saying, like how the patients are behaving to their doctors, how you're perceived by the psychiatrist that you're being sent to before you sort of like can pass all the administrative burdens and the hoops that are needed in order to try and um, get access to surgery, you know, the leaving things all within the realm of medical expertise the way that Emily Bazelon does. It, you know, that's one way of framing things. But I think your your piece goes for essentially a perspective of looking at at how medical expertise actually comes to exist, right? Which I think is very important here because I think one of the things that it's a damn shame is that people like Emily Bazelon, like they have your you know, arguably very valuable time and expertise, you know, you've done all of this digging, you've spent all the fucking time deciphering these old fuckers handwriting. I mean, you know what I mean? Uh, Yeah, yeah. You've read what they actually had to say, you spent the time to read the letters and you, you have these like great observations about how these very standards that she's supposed to be showing both sides on and doing all this excellent, you know, eight months long reporting on, um, for the New York Times, you're, you're really showing uh, how they're constructed in, in the standards of care essay around really being more about building up the expertise of the doctors themselves. And it, it, I think it really helps you actually see that, you know, what the Emily Bazelon article actually is and what types of pieces like that actually are, which is, again, more of the kind of social construction of the authority of medical expertise as a gatekeeper and sort of mediator Um to uh, keep the lid on trans life, making sure it doesn't become a kind of social contagion that gets out of the box or whatever the fuck. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, that's, I like I had this exact conversation <laughs> with Emily Bazelon being like, okay, so the, the history that we're seeing here, right, that I did all of this digging about, and I will say like Harry Benjamin's handwriting is atrocious. And then he would get <laughs> mad at patients for if their handwriting wasn't good because that was like them not being respectful. Um, so just that is a fun parenthetical. Um, <laughs> I love it. But like <laughs> the point, one of the main points of this article um, that I wrote is that like the their expertise, right? They don't know what they're doing, and the way that they construct their expertise is by saying like, "Okay, hold on, everyone. Like this could go really badly for all involved. So like you need a doctor um, to be involved with this. Conveniently." we are doctors. Um, <laughs> right. And like, that's how, that's how they kind of construct their expertise. And then there's also this, this whole, and this is like a kind of a side note, but like kind of throughout, and this didn't make it into the article, but it's something that I'm kind of like thinking about for the the book chapter version of this, that it's going to get like revised back into. But one of the things that you see throughout their letters, um, especially when they're worried about legal ramifications is basically saying like the state doesn't have the authority to make decisions about this because the state doesn't understand science. Um, you know, oh they use, like they literally use the word like unscientific. Um, they're like, what a like 
sad state of affairs that in like, you know, 1960, um, the state just like doesn't understand that like chromosomes aren't all that there is to sex and whatever. Like, oh my God. Really go hard into being like, we should be the ultimate authorities here because the state is unscientific, it's backwards, it doesn't know enough about like about sex to be able to make these distinctions. Um, so like that's happening. So anyway, like there are all of these ways that they're constructing their expertise. But what I find totally horrifying and fascinating is that like now we've added the New York Times to that in helping um maintain right. that expertise by like continuing to feed into this cycle of like this is really high stakes. This is a battle. This is a debate. Look at like how fraught this is. And like one of the ways that we could like potentially have this not like have trans care not be so dictated by like what a handful of doctors think is if everyone could just like chill about it because <laughs> this kind of like constant ramping up of like what if something bad happens is literally how you get these kind of like very narrow places where expertise and authority can kind of attach and like if we could just stop that constant reinflation of transness as this like high stakes thing that we need to be really careful about who are the experts we need to trust the experts like maybe just like don't worry you know like maybe it's fine if like someone transitions and then they're like oh well wish i hadn't done that okay like people make choices all the time you know like be weird about it just stop being weird um it's, but of course that's yeah. a big ask it's funny because like in in so many instances you have these frameworks where in american society we frame things as you know taking on this dignity of risk is really an honor right and it's so funny mm -hmm. that trans healthcare is a place where this doesn't apply i mean if you think about the disability rights movement and their whole orientation was that they had a right to the dignity of risk too Mm -hmm. Um, and the fact that the way kind of perceptions of risk factor into this whole thing is like a, a long historical narrative is actually fascinating. And I think I understand, um, these kinds of worries and concerns that people who like to just ac ask questions much better after reading and engaging with your work, because, you really sort of show that these risks and concerns have nothing to do with trans people themselves, with with caring about trans people's well-being and have everything to do with cis people and cis mm -hmm. people's comfort and their anxieties and their concerns. And yeah. yeah. It's so transparent, you know? Yeah. And we see that in like the way that the framing of risk in like belts letters for example right he becomes the one who's taking on all of the risk and that makes them him this kind of like heroic mm -hmm. figure of like he is daring to be on the cutting edge of medicine um when actually if you read i mean i found that these like really kind of like horrifying um transcripts from trans support groups from from like later on like in like the late 60s i think where you have these like trans women talking about, you know, the cert like the kind of reputations of various surgeons and like which surgeons they went to and like who who they would trust. Um, and I mean, what is so abundantly clear? I mean, one of them explicitly calls Belts a butcher. Um, wow. 
And, you know, they talk about like these other surgeons that was like, oh, yeah, like I, I knew this person who went to, to this surgeon. She was like absolutely mutilated. Um, like that, that is like mutilated is the word that they use. And so like that's happening because like these doctors do not give a shit about their patients and they are literally just like use it like right that's where the real like experimental methods were happening um i mean you literally was, talked about uh benjamin sewing testicles from one animal onto another animal um before right, he got right. into doing this like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah which i mean i think benjamin benjamin himself was probably not doing that but like that was like the field of research that right. like he was invested right that was like a thing that people were very much doing and that was like i mean the history of surgery is horrific yeah yeah and like that was specifically in the service of cis masculinity like right that was right so like and benjamin himself literally was taking testosterone throughout this whole time because yeah because he was like 90 (laughs) and he was like i want to still be like a vigorous man and you had like letters between him and like other people being like okay like what's the best like you know oh i'm taking testosterone that has like what b vitamins or whatever the fuck in it um you know and that seems to be working really well for me like i I used to get it from like this pharmaceutical company but they stopped making it so now i'm getting it from right and so like you know and, and lots of lots of people have been like lots of scholars um you know and and people on the internet um have been talking about this but like gender affirming healthcare is something that cis people get all the time Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like only when trans people want it that it becomes a problem. But yeah, anyway, the the I think the, the point that I wanted to make about like belts and and um his like experimental methods were like he was the one who was like, I'm I am personally taking on all of this risk at you know at the vanguard of medicine, but like it was actually his patients who were physically taking on really significant risks because like this was a set of of surgeries that were like very much in their infancy at this moment and belt was not particularly interested in the well-being of in like the physical well-being of his patients so like the narrative of risk gets just like completely attached in the wrong place and i think that that's like still happening um and that's even how like if you look at the first um like the 1979 wpath standards of care mm-hmm. um which i sent to emily basalam oh um gosh. i'm just feeling very salty you know about the whole thing I love um, it. but like they literally, it. it's like <laughs> um you know it's like a i don't know what like 12 or 14 page document or something it's not very long but the vast vast majority of it is about protecting doctors. There's like one or two little points where they're like, okay, we shouldn't overcharge people, protect patients' right to privacy. But like, that's it. The rest of it is like, they literally use the words peer review, <laughs> like in, in the, multiple times, like, which kind of like adds legitimacy to it. But it's literally like, that is why they, like, I'm just going to like read a little bit from like, why the psychiatric evaluation is in the WPATH standards and like how those standards frame it. So there's like all of these, like what they, what are like principles that are basically like points going through the standards. So, okay. This is just like kind of some, some long quotes from that. Okay. So principle 15 is quote, 
Peer review is a commonly accepted procedure in most branches of science and is used primarily to ensure maximal efficiency and correctness of scientific decisions and procedures. Principle 16 um, emphasizes that medical providers, quote, must often rely on possibly unreliable or invalid sources of information, including patients' verbal reports. Um, and then so both of those combined lead to principle 17, which is fully about risks to providers. So quote from WPATH Standards of Care 1979, psychiatrists and psychologists, given the burden of deciding who to recommend for hormonal and surgical sex reassignment and for whom to refuse such recommendations, are subject to extreme social pressure and possible manipulation as to create an atmosphere in which charges of laxity, favoritism, sexism, financial gain, et cetera, may be made. The person recommending surgery does not enjoy the comfort or security of knowing that his decision would be supported by his peers. And so with all that said, um, the standards then says anyone who operates on a trans patient without at least two written recommendations from psychiatrists or psychologists, which it reiterates our peer review, wow. is, quote, guilty of professional misconduct. So like, wow, that, yeah, right. You have to like, peer review the patient. You, you have, have to, to prove. peer review the patient. It's a proof. Oh my God. You have to peer review the patient wow. because like this is, you know, you have the, the burden of deciding who to to allow care for. And, you know, you don't have the comfort or security of knowing this decision will be supported by your peers. Like you, the doctor, do not enjoy the comfort of security of knowing this decision will be supported by your peers. No word here about like if the trans person trying to transition has comfort or security of being supported by their peers. Like mm -hmm. it's just it's so transparent. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just like reading through some of this and just like being reminded of like. Another quote, the care and treatment of sex reassignment applicants or patients often causes special problems for the professionals offering such care and mm. treatment, uh, not limited to justifying his or her work to the public, the need to respond to multiple non-paying service applicants, uh, the need to be receptive to extra demands for services and assistance made by sex reassignment applicants as compared to other patient groups. Like So funny how this is the naturalized, you know, just Yeah. As a, yeah. these are these are care guidelines that need that are nuanced for patient safety. These this is mm -hmm. incredibly nuanced. This is um incredibly nuanced. It reads like uh like a torts settlement or some shit you know what i mean like it it, it reads yes. legalistically because it's about indemnity because it's about protecting right. doctors who are you know basically making these decisions about whether or not to certify someone you know as a peer-reviewed trans person or a denied i guess is not scientifically trans enough um you know to to protect them from indemnity from from lawsuits from malpractice from from whatever from scrutiny right. even yeah. And like, meanwhile, it's not like, you know, the peer review is not about, right? There's no way to actually like peer review someone about if they're trans or not. There's no like, like even at this point, you know, they'll put people through a lot of psychological testing. Um, but none of that is like, you know, are you really trans or not? It, it's just like, it's all, all just vibes. Do you feel trans to me? Yeah. A random cis psychiatrist. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
And that becomes a really important value judgment within like systems of, of care, distribution mm-hmm. and access. It's horrifically yeah. violent too. I mean, yeah. and, and it's, how do you think these things sort of naturalize from liability protections to physicians to protect physicians from risk into moral quandaries that need to be sorted out because they're, you know, still quote unquote cutting edge medical decisions and the patient mm-hmm. is at risk. You know, that's a huge sort of translation, but it is it's obviously happened. But um sort of what do you feel like sort of drives that? Huh. I don't really know. And like this is in part, I mean, so what has been really funny to, I mean not funny, but funny um to me about this article is that like, I did not write it intending for it to be like a history of like the WPATH standards, but we don't really have any histories of the WPATH standards. And so like, this is, this is it. Like this is, so like, that's how this article has really been taken up. Um, And so when I say like, I don't really know the answer to that question, like it's in part because I mean, this is where my like research stops like in in the kind of like temporal aspect of it and there are other people right now who are like working on dissertations about like what happens after this but it's still early days for for us like learning more about this history and so like my i guess my speculative answer is that i think that there's i mean so actually my part of my speculative answer is that like we just don't know this history very well like right um, I did not know that this was what I was going to find when I went into these sources. Like I had planned to do something like quite different. Um, like when I first started looking at Harry Benjamin's papers, I was, you know, this this was not what I was going to write about, but it was just like there. It was so abundantly clear that this was like a story that I needed to tell. Right. Speaking mm-hmm. about going where the sources take you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, so I think that's part of it. I think is that like we have this narrative that like the history of trans medicine is one where like what people were being assessed for was their adherence to gender norms and i think that's just been kind of taken as truth and i mean i think there is there's absolutely truth to that like that is also something that was kind of you know you could see in the background of this stuff and i think that that's something that becomes a larger part of the process later on um like later in the 20th century when you start getting these like university based gender clinics um that do have this kind of more formalized treatment apparatus um that v- developed kind of out of what um benjamin and belt were doing but i think did have a little bit more of a focus on gender assessment. And so we do like that narrative comes from like a very real place. Um, But I think part of like what has gotten lost in translation is this aspect of like risk, the kind of like legal aspects of it, the kind of creation of expertise Mm -hmm. is something that like hasn't gotten carried through as much. I mean, that's like only one little component of an answer to that question. No, but I mean, kind of the la- like the lack of um, the the sort of uh, narrow insights that we are currently working with, basically the kind of like narrow way this history is told, right? Which is this kind of like grand uh, genius narrative of like 
you know, Harry Benjamin sort of starting this ripple that results in a, like a broad and like widely utilized system of classification, you know, mm-hmm. that that what we know has happened, right, is that things like these kinds of debates that Emily Bazelon frames as being kind of like pulled out of like God's forehead or something. Right. This is brand new, like, you know, hot off the press. Here is like a new debate for society to weigh for the very first time ever. You know, it's like that stuff doesn't just come out of nowhere. Like it has to come from somewhere. And I think in the, the sort of when we think about how trans identity is gatekept by medical and legal authority. Like there are so many missing pieces in this story. There are so many um, things that are still, you know, need to be looked at from all sorts of perspectives, especially and including, you know, one that considers the kind of social transformation that American medicine and, and medical legal authority has undergone in the last, you know, 150, 200 years in the United States. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Like, I mean, part of this is also like, I mean, beyond even the problem of like, we just like don't, we just don't have that much like academic trans history, right? Like I can count on on less than two hands, probably like the number of historical monographs on trans history that we have. Like it's, it's just, there's just not that. And most of those um, are pre 20th century. Like we just don't have that much 20th century trans history. Um, but there's also this funny like disciplinary thing that happens um and this is you know probably like less interesting to listeners who are like not in the academy but like i think i might be wrong about this but like i'm okay i'm probably one of very very few people who both works on trans history and is like in a history of science (laughs) department um right there's a lot of a lot of work that has been done on like the history of trans medicine that is not necessarily done by scholars who really work in the history of science and medicine. So it's just like, and that doesn't mean that it's bad work, but it means like the questions that people are asking are just kind of like a different set of questions focused, right? So like you might not necessarily be interested in a question about the construction of expertise um, if you're writing a history of trans medicine from the perspective of just like, you know, what was the kind of more like social history experience Mm -hmm. um, of being a patient in this moment, right? Which is like a super important and good project. But like, it just means that like the kind of orientation of it and the kind of methods and and questions that people are asking are are kind of going to be different. And so we just like don't have a ton of that yet. Um, Hopefully, you know, there will be more hopefully grad students want to like come work (laughs) with me and like do, you know, do those kinds of projects. But I think that's also why, you know, even in the histories that we do have, like exactly what you're saying, like this kind of like attention to how facts get made through science and medicine, you know, that has been less of the focus of, of a lot of this work so far. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there there's sort of similar and different problem. I'm not trying to like equate uh, things between this and like disability studies, but there is a kind of interesting similarity in that there's like so much work in disability studies that is really kind of locked into certain specific disciplines, mm-hmm. like whether that's coming from, you know, a media theory and critique angle, which makes sense, right? Because so much of like disability is, and 
you know, stigma or whatever, these kinds of important, you know, hallmark themes, those are tied up in in media portrayals, right? So I get it. But, you right, know, the fact right. of the matter is it's still important to ask about, you know, disability from a political economy perspective, mm-hmm. disability from, you know, history of science perspective, and not just from the sort of medicalized or whatever is already standard. And I think one of the things that's like really funny, right, is that to Emily Bazelon, you know, she finds one trans expert and that becomes like someone who can sort of be a trans expert as a monolith. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, there's this kind of like understanding of like, well, if you're someone who is a a trans historian, then you are like, you know, in this kind of like mold of being a, a singularity or sort of represented as this kind of like of a type. Right. And then there's this framework that also exists that that pretends that these kinds of like monolithic collapsed identities that these are somehow like threats to dominant culture not only is like every sort of disabled person who's an expert or every trans person who's an expert sort of expected to be able to speak on behalf of like a gigantic group of people Mm -hmm. who do not all agree or think the same way or have the same politics or have the same interests or who wouldn't be answering the same research questions or asking the same research questions um you know it's it's all put into this framework, right? Where it's like, oh, but at the same time, um, this marginalized perspective is like taking over dominant culture is a threat and needs to be sort of weighed against the risk of like what letting, you know, disability become more complex, what letting more people study, you know, transness or sexuality or gender is going to do to American culture. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, it's this kind of like framing this as a kind of, problem of of culture wars and not actually just, you know, the fact of the matter is there are so many questions to be asked here and, and we're just not looking and people are not doing that work as much as right. we can like, do. <laughs> I wish that like, you know, I could uh, bring down the gender binary by writing <laughs> this one little article. Like that would be really cool. Um, I mean, and, and, and this kind of just goes back to like the the kind of like specificity of like of the trans history that we do have like even this this article is one little tiny like little sliver that and i mean in a lot of ways like you know reinforces this kind of like harry benjamin as this like originating figure in a way that like you know i went to his papers because i knew that you know because of this narrative that he was an important figure um and i do right he is important like but at the same time, like there's, so there's like this strain of trans medicine, but there's also like, um, so like Emmett Harson Drager is writing, uh, I believe still writing a dissertation. I'm not sure. Maybe it might have uh, become a, a book manuscript at this point. I'm not sure. Um, but about like the more psychiatric and psychoanalytic tradition of trans medicines, like uh, rooted in like Robert Stoller and like, um, the like university gender clinics on the West coast. And that's like a whole different na- uh, like narrative trajectory that you could start from. And they have wound up like, you know, our work is like builds off of each other. And like, I, I think we agree about a lot of things, but like, it's also just like a very different set of actors and like set of questions and, and a different kind of developmental pathway of trans medicine. Um, and like at the same time, like, Os Keys is doing um, a dissertation that like looks at a lot of the like post Benjamin kind of stuff, but they're just like going so much more in detail into like the people who are not Harry Benjamin himself, like all of these other people who were 
involved and they're doing all of these interviews like and and just like really incredible um archival work just like chasing down um like i think like they they like literally just like found boxes in like a garage recently of like (laughs) just material that no one else has looked at um and so uh, this is just all to say that like you know i think that like I am making important points here in this article, but like one of the other problems with it just being like egregiously miscited right. um, is that it also just ignores the other way that like the debate framing was a debate, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that debate framing shows is that like these doctors like did not know what they were talking about and blatantly ignored the lived expertise and experience and desires of actual trans people who were also creating knowledge about trans medicine. And like, that's a really different framing of what the debate, if there is a debate, I'm not, you know, like, I think like Emily Bazelon, et cetera, are wrong about like what the debate is currently because there's not really a debate there is actually like among medical professionals a like fairly um you know coherent set of things which like may or may not actually be what trans people want and need but like we're not like because of that framing we're not able to see how like their the the trajectory of trans medicine could have gone really differently because there were debates in the past that like got sorted out in a particular way yeah absolutely i mean that even like as we're saying you know this this article you wrote this is just one tiny piece of the picture right of sort of how these standards sort of come to become about patient safety and come to be framed as the way that we're discussing them now but one of the things that's so important is even this tiny little piece which you know, took you so much work and like, thank you for working on this, by the way. Um, it it gives you so much insight into like how to understand and think through um, things that can feel incoherent without mm-hmm. understanding the broader historical context. I mean, the the Emily Bazelon article fucking sucks, but it feels way yeah. more out of nowhere all of a sudden um, if you don't sort of understand the bigger picture and if you don't have access to these kind of small moments that give you a perspective that breaks you out of this narrow framing that we're all sort of Mm -hmm. being pointed towards right now by the current like you know uh sort of trans quote-unquote trans panic discourse that's been you know really just dominant um i think and and exponentially increasing along with these legislative attacks which are seeking Mm -hmm. to kind of impose extra risk on on physicians ironically um sort of trying to create as you say actually in the end of this piece like the sort of legal ramifications that belt was kind of hysterically preoccupied and and paranoid about that really never came to be during his lifetime those are Mm -hmm. sort of being enacted now through our contemporary legal frameworks yeah it turns out it's not mayhem that's the problem it's uh state legislatures well i mean the funny thing is that the you know when you describe the mayhem laws and the sort of preoccupation Mm -hmm. with you know trying to like make sure to preserve the genitalia of soldiers like it it really there are these really funny parallels to all of these sorts of sort of like current laws that we're seeing now um you know especially the laws around children yeah yeah i mean the the I don't know. I think it was so I I wrote this kind of like as 
the, it felt like the like tide was really starting to turn um with like anti-trans actual laws and that was like one of the like i don't i don't really know what word it like scary doesn't feel like quite enough but it was this kind of like funny scary feeling right like it was like um oh this is actually about to get so much worse <laughs> than belt thought it was and it is really deeply unfortunate that like his imagined future is what we wound up with yeah because there would have been a time where like i could have right like it, it would have been nice and i could have written this article and really th- this whole this whole project at a moment where like one could look back on this and be like isn't that quaint you know like he thought mm. that he was gonna just like come under legal fire for helping trans people access care and like that was really silly and instead what we have now is like the world that elmer belt created (laughs) um but worse he was manifesting actually yeah and he really he did a great job like (laughs) well done elmer belt you got the thing that you wanted um, it is, in fact, incredibly hard for trans people to access care and their doctors might get arrested and also their parents. Go team. Way to go, dude. Yeah, you did it. <laughs> High five. Oh, gosh. I mean, I feel like, you know, your work has really influenced a lot of the ways that I, I think about like these current legislative attacks. Do you feel like it is at least like kind of giving you a a perspective on things right now that I don't know, you know, I, I think this sort of framework of that you just brought up of like, gosh, I could be writing this in a world where the conclusion of this essay is totally different, right? Where the mm-hmm. sort of final takeaway, I, I mean, as someone who spends a lot of time reading really awful shit, um, you know, original text and just terrible you know, terrible things like just the notes that eugenicists like to write and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. You know, I I had never thought about it before that there is that that part of like kind of the purpose of doing this work is not is like to be writing it towards like not having to write that conclusion where you're like, and the parallel Mm -hmm. to the current moment is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I would love to not, I mean, I would love to not have to write this stuff at all. I mean, like the reason that I do this work entirely is to try to kind of like push back against this like turf talking point that trans people are like ignoring bodily reality, Um, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, no, actually, like the entire system of sex is bullshit. Like it is all made up. Like we are not the ones ignoring things. Like you were all the ones who are like being weird and obsessive and like, classifying things in like whatever fucking ways that you want um with like no regard for like logical consistency whatsoever um i keep kind of thinking about like you know the narrative about why is the right so afraid of trans people oh it's because like trans people might have the power to like like we show that like sex is not you know fixed and like look at all this like radical possibility And then to go back and like, you know, reread this article where it's like, actually, Benjamin and Belt are not worried about, you know, and this goes back to what you were saying before, like, they are not worried about trans people like tearing down 
dominant norms of sex and gender. Like they are actually quite comfortable um, with, you know, the, the version of sex and gender that they have. Um, and so that's what I've been kind of trying to, to think through is this kind of like, what actually is the problem? Um, because I, I don't, I mean, like on my more hopeful days, I'm like, yeah, totally. The fact that like, I'm a non-binary person is like me doing my little chipping away part, um, at like these like massive structures of violence. But when I'm like feeling more cynical about it, I'm like, okay, like this, the, the, one of the things that my work shows is that like this entire like edifice of binary sex has withstood a lot of people chipping away at it including you know doctors and scientists and people who have authority and like the whole thing has not budged because it's so flexible so i don't know i guess that's that's kind of like a downer of an answer of like yeah it gives me perspective but like what i don't know what to do with that perspective other than like continuing to like yell into the void and like type angrily at (laughs) my desk well i mean I it's not into the void. Uh, you at least have reached some people. Um, if not Emily Bazelon, um, it does reverberate. No, but I no, I feel you absolutely. It's 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 constantly uh, there isn't one right answer. It's both at once. You know, the mm-hmm. cynical yeah, and the yeah. positive like have to coexist, and then you have to find like a way to like keep going back to the awful source material and like keep digging anyways and like keep yelling anyways. And, you know, honestly, like beans, I really appreciate your work and it has helped me immensely in sort of thinking through stuff as like simple as like it changed some of the ways that I thought of the uh, way that like sort of sex factors into SSDI determinations of job uh, qualifications. Like, And these are the kinds of things that, like, when we do things and put them out in the world, even if we're, like, digging through the terrible shit and, like, you know, making these, you know, pieces that essentially communicate horrible truths to each other, at least we have the chance to, like, learn together. You know what I mean? I'm And maybe I'm just, like, too optimistic and, like, Pollyanna. No, no, I think, I think, (laughs) (laughs) no, I think, I think that you're totally right. And, like, thank you. I really, I really do appreciate that. Because, like, I mean, that's one of... Like, this is a conversation that, like, I I have with my students all the time. And, like, this is what I tell other people. But, like, it's always, like, my own own disinclination to, like, listen to the things that are coming out of my mouth. Um, But I I do think that, like, it is is this, like, both ends kind of thing. And, like, I am perpetually trying to find ways of, like... I mean, I was crying in the bathroom of the of the Kinsey archive while I was like working with these sources and like, but you have to find a way to like get yourself to to stop crying in the bathroom and go back to the work and to like, you know, go for a walk after and be like, well, that felt brutal, but I still have to find a way to like know all of this and also like continue doing work as if you don't know all of that like using what you know to like do something useful but like not getting too caught in what you know like a little bit of i think forgetting is is occasionally useful absolutely a hundred percent um was there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover today that you wanted to talk about oh the one the one fun fact is that benjamin's the, the classification scheme that he does eventually come up with on classifying transness which is based on um, Kinsey's, you know, like zero to six 
scale of homosexuality, Benjamin basically does the same thing, but for transness, which like he doesn't really ever actually use. Anyway, the, the point being is that he calls it the sex orientation scale the SOS. Oh, yeah, that is pretty good. Actually, <laughs> I forgot about that one. And this is the system that that he uses more to tell other people about his system, but he doesn't yes. really use it himself. Like that he one really use it. that one line um <laughs> that you have in the piece. I have to find it. It's so good. Um references to SOS type and correspondence were rare, and I found no indication that Benjamin actually used the scale in his own decision making. <laughs> yep but i think i just like i love it because it's so it so perfectly encapsulates like the the panic like and the prioritization of the expertise yeah (laughs) yeah um anyway that was that was just the one (laughs) that was the only thing that we didn't get to um was just the hilarity the SOS. It's a good way to end though. One <laughs> final laugh at Harry Benjamin's yeah. expense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's, I he mean, can handle the only, it. He can, yeah. He's fine. He's dead. Like, <laughs> good riddance, I guess. Um, yeah. The only thing, I, the only thing there really is to do, I think, is laugh. I'm, I'm with you hunt, uh, all the way. That's, that's the only way to do it. <laughs> Um, Beans, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, I think this is, we'll leave it here. You can find Beans on Twitter at Beans Velosi. And to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Patrons, thank you for supporting the show. We could not do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, Pre-order Health Communism or request it at your local library and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. We'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.